Welcome to the podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Eric. I'm the communications officer at the CPA. Every year, Carleton University holds Psychology Mental Health Day in October. This year is no exception. The only difference will be that it's going to be held virtually online and not in person as it normally is. It's coming up October the 8th from 1.30 until 4 o'clock p.m. Uh, check the show notes of this uh, CPA podcast episode to find where and when and how you can log in. Of course, you can do that from anywhere in the country this year. Their keynote speaker is a former president of the Canadian Psychological Association, and we welcome him to the show. My name is Dr. Keith Dobson. I'm a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary, and I'm also a senior investigator with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And you are going to be the star speaker at Carleton University's Mental Health Day Uh, which is coming up very soon. The topic of your discussion is going to be a career in clinical psychology, lessons from the trenches. I assume that means anecdotes and, uh, you know, uh, examples from your own uh, personal practice over the years. Yes, yeah. So my intention is to uh, talk about myself somewhat, uh, to talk about some of my my personal experiences as I've grown and uh, how that's influenced some of the work that I've done over the years. Uh, But then, of course, I'm going to also talk about some of the developments within clinical psychology and the way that mental health can be promoted. Uh, So you're talking a little bit about the the evolution of uh, various psychological interventions. I wonder if you could Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, Over the years, what kind of things have you seen? Absolutely, yeah. So I have the good fortune of uh, having my PhD from 1980. So I've been in the field now for 40 years. And over that period of time, there's been considerable growth in the field of mental health. Um, Some for the better. I would say generally better for the better. You know, we see advancements. Uh, When I began my training, uh, there was a fairly large controversy about different models of therapy, which have been largely supplanted now from a discussion away from models to evidence and so the field has really shifted now towards what we call evidence-based psychotherapy and within that we are able to talk a lot about what works and what doesn't work for which populations under which circumstances so it's been actually quite a revolution within the field and can you give me an example of that Mm -hmm. Um, just one thing that has changed to an evidence-based model yeah, so so most of my research has been in the field of depression, uh, so clinical depression, which of course is a significant mental health problem. And uh, back in the 1970s and in the early 1980s, there was a new treatment model that was developed called cognitive behavioral therapy. And in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, even continuing today, there were literally hundreds of research studies done to investigate when it works for which populations, uh, you know, what the effect size were, what factors affected the effect sizes. And so we're at a point now where we can say with great confidence that this is an evidence-based therapy for most people. Uh, We can actually say for which subgroups it seems to work better. And we've done studies looking at the components of the therapy to know what actually are the effective ingredients. So, So we've been able to go from sort of a global discussion about in general, what seems to work or what what people like often uh, to actually knowing and having good evidence, you know, solid data that speaks to the questions of what works. The other thing that's happened in the field is that just as cognitive behavioral therapy has developed a whole 
literature base to support it. Other models of therapy have also been investigated. And so we can now say that there are actually several evidence-based psychotherapies for the treatment of depression. And we've even had studies now looking at which treatments seem to perhaps work better for different people. So, so we've gone a long way towards what some people would call precision medicine or precision evidence for prescribing therapies. And you talked, you said a little bit about uh, different subgroups being more receptive to cognitive behavioral therapy than others, mm-hmm. and uh, that these other uh, treatment options for depression are helpful for different groups of people. Um, right. Does that mean that when somebody comes in now, they have a menu of options, and that for that person, it's likely one of the treatment options is the best? Well, we actually know, uh, we, we, we don't know precisely, but we can certainly make some fairly good estimates as to which treatments might work best for different people, yes. The difficulty we have in the provision of healthcare is that we don't necessarily have equal access to these therapies. So that has become and recognized increasingly as a significant problem. And most provinces in Canada, most places in the world have recognized that access to evidence-based psychotherapy is a real problem. So so the access is an issue, but the data supporting which therapies work better for which individuals is is starting to be, I would say, compelling, yes. Now, when you talk about access, does that mean that certain marginalized groups are unable to access uh, the therapies that might be most beneficial to them? Does it mean that there aren't mm-hmm. psychologists performing those therapies uh, in a wide enough breadth across Canada that uh, access for everyone is available? Both. Yeah, I, I would say both. Absolutely. And part of it is the funding model for psych- psychotherapy. Uh, physicians in Canada, as you know, are uh, funded publicly through the healthcare systems. Psychologists may be employed in healthcare settings and public healthcare settings, uh, but most access to psychologists is private or through insured programs. So there is definitely unequal access. And there are many places in Canada, especially rural parts of Canada, where access to psychological services is thin to non-existent. So one of the real developments that's happened and paradoxically has been promoted by COVID-19 has been the development of uh, distance therapies. So using telehealth services to provide evidence-based therapies to people who otherwise might might not get access. I think that's been a a very big shift, certainly Mm -hmm. in the last six months, Uh, but it's also highlighted a whole lot more um, inequalities in the sense that people in rural areas don't necessarily have access to the broadband internet that enables them to access those therapies, right? That, that, that you're absolutely right, and this has uh, been recognized. Actually, Health Canada has recognized that this is a barrier to care. Uh, frankly, even if there was enough broadband access, there wouldn't be enough uh, providers to provide all the care. And so there have been different kinds of formats for delivering evidence-based therapies through distance. So some are standalone web-based technologies. Some are physician-assisted or therapist-assisted forms of therapy. Some are smartphone apps. Uh, which generally don't work as well, but uh, we are certainly being pushed out. So there are different ways of delivering these these kinds of treatments. Are you delivering these treatments right now? Uh, well, I'm involved in some of these treatments, yes. I've, I've been involved in the development of some programs that are, are smartphone-based. Uh, I'm doing a large project right now. It's a dissemination study in China 
where we have a physician-assisted or therapist-assisted version of cognitive behavior therapy for perinatal depression, for example. So, um, you know, I certainly thought I would talk briefly about that, how we can do dissemination research, looking at how to take these evidence-based therapies and put them in different places or study them in different places around the world. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely involved in this work. In a sort of global way, I guess, uh, doing this all around the world, uh, is there a worldwide push to make this happen? Without a doubt. Uh, and in fact, uh, I'm the current president of the World Confederation of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. So this is an organization of organizations. So it's all of the various regional uh, groups around the world have gotten together to create this World Confederation to actually share information about different treatments for different uh, mental health problems. Uh, one of the things we've done, for example, is we've created a COVID document. So it's multilingual, uh, has resources for uh, dealing with anxiety and depression in the context of COVID-19. And we've offered it to all of the different countries of the world. Uh, next week, I'm having a, a conference call with the World Health Organization about how cognitive behavioral therapy could be used in COVID-19, uh, again, in different contexts. So absolutely, we're pushing this out as far as we can. And I suspect that there's going to be a whole lot of difference from one country to another just based on uh, cultural norms in the way that uh, this sort of therapy works for various cultures, right? Um, I would... So there are two issues here. I think one is the content of the cognitive behavioral therapy, so the actual ways in which it works are the, the targets of the intervention, and then there's the process, so the way in which those targets are, are actually activated. So I'll give you an example from depression. Uh, we know that in depression, one of the behavioral responses is to slow down, to you know disengage from the environment, to isolate perhaps, and so on. And so one of the interventions that we use uh, to help people recover from depression is what we call behavioral activation, which is basically helping the person find meaningful ways to re-engage in their environment, you know, sort of simplistically right. put. You know, but there's a whole set of techniques that we use uh, to help people do that. So that's the content. The way that we do that, though, varies dramatically from place to place, and the actual content of what people do, like you know, so the things that are important to them will vary from country to country. So it could be in one place that uh, you know, re-engaging with family is critical, whereas for another place it might be that re-engaging in the workplace is, is the critical ingredient. So, so again, we can apply this same idea differently in different people in different contexts, and culture does matter. The other thing that we've discovered is that even for something like behavioral activation, that in some countries, uh, like Canada, for example, uh, it seems to work best if it's done in a collaborative way. So the therapist typically will invite the, the client to identify those areas that are important to him or her and then work with them collaboratively to, to re-engage them. In other countries, like, for example, in China, um, it seems to work better if the therapist actually says, here's an important area for you to re-engage. Here's how you can do it. So, that, so they take more of a directive perspective, and that seems to actually work culturally better within the Chinese context. So it's the same intervention targeting the same content, you know, generally speaking, but it's applied in different ways in different contexts. So when you say collaboratively, then what you're talking about is that the patient and the therapist together come Correct. up with the benchmarks, uh, but that the 
the patient themselves would then have to be the one to start the reconnection process. Exactly right. So what we try to do in North America, generally in Canada and the U.S., is we try to get the patient, if possible, to set their own goals and their own timelines for recovery so that they are essentially pushing themselves with support to to re-engage. So with COVID uh, creating this whole new set of opportunities and uh, obviously having a lot of downsides as well, how has it affected you at the University of Calgary and with the work that you're doing, uh, aside from being a part of these massive research projects? Um, Well, we've certainly had to shift to distance work, of course. Uh, So just like many people, I think, across Canada, we're seeing a lot of virtual meetings, uh, which, you know, again, I think for the most part has worked okay. Um, I found myself in my office more by myself, and uh, as a result, again, somewhat uh, ironically, perhaps, or paradoxically, perhaps being even more productive. Uh, so I've already got one book out this year. I have another one that's going to be finished by the end of this year, and I've got another two in progress for next year. So so I've been able to actually do a lot of writing. Um, <laughs> that we, sounds we, extremely productive. Yeah, exactly. So, And again, it was just partly you know the timing that when it happened. Uh, but personally, again, I've been trying to maintain the mental health recommendations that we have for the field. So things like staying physically active, getting up every day, um, you know, maintaining regular exercise, you know, all of these kinds of things. We've been blessed here in, in Western Canada with a gorgeous fall. So we've been getting out and exercising and getting up to the mountains. Some. Uh, so it's just been, uh, you know, you know, very lucky in that respect. But I'm watching what happens and talking to people. I, I know that we've seen increases in anxiety and depression across Canada. Uh, we have had increases in domestic violence, increases in substance use. Um, we will see, unfortunately, I think, more civil unrest, you know, with some of the uh, changes in public guidance. So mm-hmm. I know in, Ont- in Ontario and Quebec right now, we're going to see some some reaction to changing government policies. There's been some anger, I know, in the school systems about the way that uh, the return to school has had been done. So so we're tracking and watching, and uh, I've been doing a fair bit of media work myself, trying to encourage people to use best public and psychological health practices. So, so it's been a, a significant shift, for sure. No doubt. And yeah. so what are some of the best psychological and public health practices that you recommend? Well, the public health ones are, are the ones that we hear all the time from, from public health agencies, you know, wearing masks when in social situations, keeping our hands clean as possible, keeping them away from our mouth, engaging in physical distancing. Uh, one of the words I never use is social distancing because uh, I think that that's actually a huge mistake. I, th- I think we need to be physically distant, but we need to be socially engaged. So from a psychological perspective, the things that I'm promoting are things like regular uh, wake sleep sleep cycles, uh, you know, trying to go to bed at regular times, get up at regular times, because we know that promotes mental health, uh, eating well, you know, as well as possible, uh, maintaining social contact. I think that's critical. Humans are social animals, and so uh, we know that you know, one of the best risk factors for both anxiety and depression is lack of social contact, and so maintaining social contact is critical, how, however that's done. 
Um, things like watching yourself talk, you know, so again, from a cognitive behavior therapy perspective, a lot of what we do is look at the way people talk to themselves and the way that they uh, potentially mis misrepresent or distort, you know, the things around them. So trying to get good, accurate information, not overwhelming yourself with negative information, uh, trying to correct yourself if you find that your thoughts are shifting to the dark side, you know, so to speak. Uh, these these kinds of things. So so there's a whole host of different things that people can do. Maintaining physical exercise again is is a very important thing for mental health. And again, what form that takes will vary from person to person, but but that's also an important activity. And then the last thing I would say is is if you can try to find a cause. Um, and again, it, it doesn't have to be you know a, a major uh, kind of event. Uh, it could be something personal, but something small and meaningful that for you. And what I've been encouraging is that people look for something that they can do every day, uh, you know, that gives them a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose. And then if they can, find a larger purpose that they can work to over the long term. So that gives you, again, both a sense of satisfaction or completion daily, but it also gives you a longer term goal or something to work towards. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, now, you released a book, you uh, published a book right in the middle of this pandemic. What was that book about? Uh, well, the one that's actually, it's with the publisher right now, so they're in production. In fact, we just saw the galley proofs this week. Uh, it's on ethics and professional practice in psychology. So it, it's a technical book, really, about the law and the regulation of the profession of psychology across Canada. So, so looking at things like informed consent and and confidentiality and you know whole whole risk of uh, different issues, all things so, that I suppose are uh, very top of mind with psychologists when it comes to teletherapy. Absolutely, and, and critical for training, you know, for new therapists, and also just for keeping uh, people apprised of what the current laws and regulations are. For sure, yeah. Uh, one of the books I'm working on right now is a book on stigma in mental health. So this is an edited book with a colleague from Queen's University. Uh, we have got most of the chapters in, and we're, we're working on editing it now. It'll be out by the end of the year. It'll be, it'll be in production by the end of the year, I should say. And uh, it's on looking at stigma in mental health. So this is work I've been doing with the Mental Health Commission of Canada um, and it's looking at uh, various applications. So we've been doing a lot of programs, for example, with health providers in the schools, in work environments, uh, to trying to look at the way that stigma for mental health it specifically affects people in different contexts and ways to mitigate that stigma. And this is part of the Opening Minds program, I believe, right? Exa exactly right, yes. Okay, so uh, what you've done with that program will end up in a book. We'll look forward uh, to reading that by mm -hmm. the end of the year. And uh, in the meantime, how is that program going? It's, uh, it's pivoted as well, you know, to, to moving towards online. So uh, when the pandemic began, of course, most of the programs we were offering were being done live. So we were doing live training in different settings. 
and we've had to shift those now to uh, virtual meetings, but we've been able to do that. Um, the programs I've been involved in uh, primarily are called the Working Mind, which again is uh, workplace uh, stigma reduction, and we've been able to modify that program for many different contexts. So one version is uh, the Working Mind for first responder groups, for example, but we also have a variation of it now called the Inquiring Mind, which is for post-secondary and now high school students. So we're moving them all to online or virtual training platforms. Uh, my work is mostly in the research and development side, so helping to make sure that the program follows best evidence, you know, and that we are continuing to collect data and publish the data about these programs. Uh, but we've been able to push them out now. Uh, the Working Mind, I think, has been delivered to about 140,000 people across Canada in different contexts uh, over the last few years. So, yeah, it's going very well. Well, it sounds like you're extremely busy and that you have a lot on the go and that you're going to have a lot to say uh, when it comes to uh, Mental Health Day at uh, Carleton University next week. Uh, yeah. So, hey, thanks for taking the time to speak to speak with me about it. I feel like Thank I've you. helped you a lot, too, uh, and that in doing this with such a large platform as the CPA, your conference call with the World Health Organization next week won't seem so large. <laughs> well, thank you very yeah. much. Uh, no, I, I'm actually, uh, again, very privileged to be invited by Carlton to, to give this talk. Obviously, I won't be able to speak about all of these issues next week. Uh, I'll tend to focus in on a few issues and, again, throw in some personal anecdotes as well about my own development and how that's influenced uh, my career. But, uh, yeah, no, it'll be very, very interesting, I hope, for many people. I hope so, too. And, oh, I neglected mm -hmm. to mention you are a former president of the CPA. Uh, yes. Does that provide any uh, anecdotal fodder for your uh, for your talk? Um, well, I think that's just, again, I've, I've been lucky, I guess, or, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly cultivated different organizational responsibilities. So I've been the president of and on the board of many different uh, organizations now over the years. Um, but yes, there certainly are some stories there in the Canadian Psychological Association. I don't know if I'll tell them all. Uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think having the national perspectives and then more recently the international perspective has been an important part of the work that I do. Well, we look forward to seeing that talk, and uh, I encourage everybody to uh, log in to Carleton University's Mental Health Day next week. And good luck with the World Health Organization. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Dr. Keith Dobson, former president of the Canadian Psychological Association, current investigator for the Opening Minds program of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and, of course, at the University of Calgary, keynote speaker for the upcoming Psychology Mental Health Day at Carleton University. It will be held virtually October 8th from 1.30 until 4 o'clock p.m. And check the show notes for details on how you can log in and listen to Dr. Dobson's keynote address.